As we begin tonight, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6. 2 Kings, and chapter 6. And we continue in the passage that we looked at this morning in the life of the Old Testament prophet Elisha. And what is taking place, what has taken place here in this chapter is that the evil king of Assyria, of Syria, Ben-Hadad, who has, he has been at war with the nation of Israel for many years. His war of, army, of his army with horses and chariots was really part of a much greater spiritual warfare which has always been taking place in this world, a manifestation of the ancient conflict between good and evil which began in the Garden of Eden when God promised that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Ben-Hadad's war began with sending down these bands of commando raiders who would attack along the coast of Israel. But it came about whenever a band of the Syrian raiders came down, they would find the Israelites standing there in the exact place where they planned to attack, and they were always ready and armed, waiting for the Syrians. The Syrians would have to retreat in frustration, in bewilderment, not knowing how the Israelites knew their plans, they would report back to Ben-Hadad that their efforts had been discovered and they had failed. And after this happened a number of times, Ben-Hadad finally found out the reason why this was taking place and it was because of the prophet in Israel whose name was Elijah, the God of Israel who knew all the secret plans of Ben-Hadad would reveal them to the prophet Elijah. Elijah would then go and tell the king of Israel, Jehoram, and Jehoram would station his soldiers to be ready for this Syrian attack. So after Ben-Hadad heard of Elijah doing this, he came up with another plan to send his great army down into Israel and to capture the prophet Elisha. But when his great army came down and surrounded the city where Elijah was, Elijah came out and put blindness upon his entire army and led them through the wilderness into his own capital city of Samaria. And with the Assyrian army now in his capital, Elijah opened their eyes to see, and they saw the first among the first persons, people that they saw was Jehoram, king of Israel. And Jehoram desired to put them all to death. But Elijah was a peacemaker. He commanded the king, rather than putting them to death, to give them life and to feed them. And the Syrian army ate a great feast and returned back to Ben-Hadad. And they told him all that Elijah had done. It was without doubt one of the strangest events in all of military history, an invading army taken captive into the enemy's capital. And there they sat down with a great feast and were sent back to their homeland in peace. There was a great lesson in all of this for Ben-Hadad. And the lesson was 
that there was nothing that he could ever do to harm the people of God. The God of Israel has power to thwart every scheme against his people. And in the midst of apparent impossibilities, one of his cities completely surrounded by his enemies, the God of heaven can still make a way of escape. And when everything seems hopeless and everything seems despairing and destruction seems certain, he still has wisdom and power to do such things. The God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is the one who still sits upon his throne in heaven as a sovereign over all the affairs of men. And there is no plan which can ultimately succeed against his kingdom. But Ben-Hadad did not learn the lesson. And whatever impressions were made by God's power over his army, Whatever impressions were made by Elijah's efforts for peace, they were only transient and passing. And Ben-Hadad continued in his enmity against the nation of Israel and his desires for war against them. And so now we pick up our passage here in verse 24, where we read what happened next. It came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. The days of Ben-Hadad sending commando raiders was over. Even the days of him sending a great army were past. Ben-Hadad now gathered all of his army, all of his forces together, and he himself led them out for a final and decisive blow against the nation of Israel. His massive army seemed to advance unhindered down through the northern kingdom of Israel. And it came to the capital city of Samaria. The entire land was overrun by this invading army. Now all that was left was this city of Samaria. And Ben-Hadad's strategy was not to storm Samaria and take the city by force, but rather to starve it into surrender. That's why we read in verse 24 where it says that he besieged Samaria, meaning he surrounded it with his army so that no one could enter, no one could leave the city. The city was completely surrounded by his army. No one could go out to harvest the crops and bring them in. No food, no water, any supplies could enter into the city. And the strategy was that the king and the people of Israel would be forced by famine and starvation to eventually surrender. And indeed, a famine did begin as we read in the next verse, verse 25. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, They besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. The siege continued until all the usual food of the city was exhausted. The marketplaces, which had once been filled with abundance, were now closed and empty. All bread, all crops, all fruit and meat, 
in the city had disappeared. Not an ounce of edible food was really left in the entire city, and the people wandered the streets willing to eat anything that they could possibly find and to pay any price for it just to survive. The donkey that is mentioned here was a ceremonial a ceremonially unclean animal in the Old Testament that would have never been eaten by a Jew. A donkey's head was the most inedible part of the animal, and yet so desperate were the conditions that all considerations of ceremonial uncleanness were thrown aside, and a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels, 80 pieces of silver, and a handful of Dove's dung was sold for five shekels of silver. And it showed how extreme the situation had become. The richest man in the city, even with all of his money, the best meal that he could buy was a donkey's head. And so bad was it that people wandered looking for some dove dung on the ground. We see how transitory and useless silver and riches can be. There was a time when 80 shekels of silver would buy something of great value in the city of Samaria. But now the famine and the Great Depression of the city has come to the point where even men of great wealth could buy nothing. Because there was nothing to buy. The book of Proverbs tells us, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings and flies like an eagle toward the heavens. And this is what happened in the city of Samaria. But then things were even worse than this, as we read in verses 26 and 27. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? So King Jehoram here, he is walking along the wall of the city, perhaps looking out to encourage his troops, seeing the movement of the enemy army outside. And as he walks along, a woman cries out to him for help, and he tells her that even as the king of Israel, there is nothing that he can do for her. He has no grain on his threshing floor And his wine press is dry. And the only one who can help her is the Lord. Now Jehoram was a very unrighteous king. We know from other passages. And he seems to speak here with a spirit of bitterness and anger. Which he blames and he blames the famine on the Lord. It is as if he says to the woman. This is, this judgment is the Lord's. And if he does not help you, then how can I? If the Lord does not help you, how shall I help you? From my barren threshing floor or from my dry 
wine press. We remember that it was not too long before this that Jehoram had set the entire Syrian army down for a great feast, but now he has nothing at all. And apparently, as Jehoram looked at this woman, he saw that there was something out of the ordinary, something not right with her, and so he asked her a question. We read verse 28 and 29. And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. So here we read some of the most unpleasant words in all the word of God. The Bible never hides from us the darkness of the human heart or the atrocities that men and women can commit. And this is no less the word of God, than any other passage. The situation is so desperate that the people of Samaria have been reduced to cannibalism, and not only cannibalism, but that of the most repulsive kind in which mothers put their own children to death. The pangs of starvation, the famine, is so severe that even the natural instincts of motherly love were extinguished. And this woman had entered into agreement with her neighbor, that they would eat her son one day and her neighbors the next. She had upheld her part of the arrangement and her neighbor had backed out of hers and so now she appeals to the king for justice and she wants King Jehoram to make her neighbor carry out her own promise. As well, Jehoram was apparently unaware of these things taking place in the city. But when he heard what this woman has done, Jehoram is struck with a sense of horror and grief. And we find that now in verse 30. It came about and it came about that when the king heard the words of the woman, that he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. So apparently what took place here is Jehoram was wearing his royal robes as the king on the outside. and He was overcome with what he had heard and so he suddenly grabs his royal garments and tears them as a token of his mourning. And underneath his royal garments were sackcloth. And he continued to walk along the wall and the people looked up at him and they saw their king now walking in sackcloth. Sackcloth was a thick cloth made of black goat's hair and it was rough and coarse on the skin and it was often used in the Bible as a symbol of repentance and grief over sin. And we might think that this is what has happened to Jehoram, king of Israel. He is wearing this sackcloth because he is repenting of his sins. And he is calling upon God earnestly and he is turning from his wicked ways. But as we see from what follows, his sackcloth is only an outward display of religion 
and it has no reality in his heart. The very next thing he does is he takes an oath that he will put God's prophet Elijah to death by the end of the day. We read in verse 31. Then he said, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elijah, son, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Jehoram, he remembered all that Elijah had done to the Syrian army, how he had blinded them and led them captive into his own capital city there of Samaria. He knew that Elijah still had the same power and he could do it again and he could relieve the nation, the city of this great distress. He could pray for the destruction of the Syrian army and it would be done. But Elijah refused to use his powers in such a way and he allowed the city to sink into this great catastrophe. And Jehoram here, he fixes the entire blame on God, on his prophet, and he swears that Elisha shall be put to death by the end of the day. May God do to me also, as he has done to this woman, and may he do even worse to me, if I do not put Elisha to death this day. This is the way it has always been throughout history, that the true people of God are often blamed when judgments fall on a nation. Matthew Henry writes, in the days of persecuting emperors, when the empire groaned under an extraordinary calamity, the fault was laid upon Christians and they were doomed to destruction. And then he quotes from the ancient Romans, away with the Christians to the lions. We read in verse 32, Now Elijah was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man from his presence. But before the messenger came to him, he he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. Just like on previous occasions, the Lord revealed to Elijah what was to come, and Elijah knew that the king had sent a man to take his head. And so Elijah told the elders who were with him to block the door and hold it shut against him. And when he says here at the end of verse 32, is it not, is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? He means, is not his master, the king of Jehoram, the man that Jehoram has now sent to take Elijah's head, is not his master, King Jehoram, quickly following behind him? And that is what happened. Just after Jehoram sent the man to behead Elijah, Jehoram had second thoughts about it, And he ran after the man to try to stop him from carrying out his command. And then when we come to verse 33, we have to supply some of the context in order to understand what is happening. In verse 33, the verse begins. 
And while he was still talking with him, with them, that is, while Elijah was still talking with the men in his house, behold, the messenger came down to him, the messenger from Jehoram. And now what appears to have happened is that Jehoram, the king, arrives and enters the house, and it is Jehoram who now speaks to Elisha at the end of the verse. And he said, Jehoram said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elijah had apparently told Jehoram that the only hope for deliverance was from the Lord, that he should not surrender the city, that he should wait for the Lord and his help, but the king is in despair. The king, Jehoram, he has no hope at all. And so he says here to Elijah, Behold, this evil, this judgment, it is all from the Lord. Why should I wait for his deliverance? Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? It is true that the great crisis had come from the Lord. And it was God's judgment on the nation of Israel. It was God's judgment for their forsaking him and his commandments. For their turning aside to other gods, the nation of Israel as a whole, Jehoram as the king of that nation, they were guilty of turning away from God's commandments. If we were to read other passages, we would find that Jehoram had set up Baal worship in the city, right there in the city of of Samaria. He had the ashram, he had the golden calves, he had all kinds of idolatry and false worship throughout the land of Israel, and now all of their false gods were failing them, they could do nothing for them in this time of calamity. And Jehoram wearing his sackcloth, was like many others when times get hard, they put on an outward display of religion, but it has nothing to do with true repentance in their hearts. And throughout this passage, Jehoram finds fault with God, and he blames the entire catastrophe on him and on his prophet Elijah. And he makes, he makes no mention of his own sins or the sins of the people or any need of repentance among them. He tells the woman at the wall that if the Lord does not help, he can do nothing for her. He takes an oath that he will put Elijah to death by the end of the day. And he declares it is all God's fault and there is no hope of deliverance. Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should we wait for the Lord any longer? So Jehoram here, he has charged God with dealing unfairly with them and bringing this great calamity upon them. God is unjust He is unfair in his dealings with us. This is the way it often is when God's judgments fall upon men. They blame it upon him and they rail against him and claim that it is not right and he has not dealt justly with them. We might wonder ourselves, 
when we see the extent to which this judgment has come. And the famine so severe there is no food and women are reduced to this great extreme. And we might wonder, has God dealt unfairly with his people on this occasion? And has his judgment upon his own nation been too harsh? But we will see that it is not at all the case. For he is always gracious, always patient, always full of mercy for those who come to him in repentance. And he is always just and right in all of his judgments. And what was taking place here on this occasion was something that he had forewarned his people of. And he had written it down in the Holy Scriptures centuries before through his prophet Elijah. I mean, through his prophet Moses. And we turn back and we can see that in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Deuteronomy, chapter 28. God here in this chapter speaks to his people as he is about to bring them into the promised land of Canaan. And throughout this chapter, he gives them both blessings and curses. He promises them if they obey his voice, if they are careful to keep his commandments, then he will pour out blessings upon them. We read in the first three verses, he said, Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you will obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. And he goes on here to list these blessings in such detail. Blessings that will come upon the nation if they continue to walk in his ways. And his blessings come first before the curses because he is a God who is slow to anger. And he is quick to bless and he is far more inclined. And his great desire is to bring blessings rather than curses upon men. We'll just read some of these blessings beginning verse 5. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way, and they will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you if you will keep his keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you the good storehouse, the heavens, 
to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail and you only shall be above and you shall not be underneath if you will listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. So here we have God's blessings upon his nation if they will follow him and obey him. He seems to pour out these blessings, blessings upon blessings, and he seems to weigh them down with great blessings if they will only obey and follow him. But then he warns them that if they do not obey him, there will be terrible consequences and he will bring great judgments upon them as well. And that's how it continues now, verse 15 and 16. He says, but it shall come about if you will not obey the the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. The curses do not come without cause. They are not sent for light or trivial reasons. God takes no delight in sending the curses. It is not his desire to send them. But they are sent because of the sin of not obeying the Lord. And if they will not listen to him and keep his commandments, then he goes on now to list various curses, many curses that will come upon them. We read just a few verses down in verse 49. Down in verse 49 through 53, he says this, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who shall have no respect for the old, nor nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd, and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, new wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. And it shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land, which the Lord your God has given you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy shall oppress you. And then down verse 56 and 57. The refined and delicate woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her feet on the ground for delicateness and refinement, shall be hostile toward the husband she cherishes and toward her son and daughter, and toward her afterbirth which issues from between her legs and toward her children whom she bears. She shall eat them secretly for lack of anything else during the siege and the distress by which your enemy shall oppress you in 
your towns. So the very same thing which happened in Samaria in the days of Jehoram the king was spoken by God and written down in the Old Testament scripture in the days of Moses more than 700 years before it took place. That if they disobeyed the Lord, he would send an invading army against them who would besiege their cities and the famine would become so severe that they would be reduced to the most extreme measures of survival. And all of this warning was given to keep them in the ways of obedience. God was always gracious to his nation, even in his warnings of them, to tell them what would come so that they would turn from their sins so that it would not come to pass. So when Jehoram went out that day and found that woman on the wall and heard what she said, it should have come to him as no surprise because he knew that they had disobeyed God's commandments and he knew that the nation had turned from God after other idols and he could have read in the book of the law what God had forewarned long before through Moses and now it was all coming to pass. And we should remember that God made ample provision for pardon for the forgiveness of sins under the Old Testament. He commanded the priests to offer their sacrifices so the sins of the people could be forgiven. And over and over throughout the law of Moses, we read these words that the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin and he shall be forgiven. He was always, always a forgiving God. And if Jehoram, Jehoram and the people of his day had been willing to repent, they would find mercy. They would find compassion. He is slow to anger, gracious and compassionate, and always abounding in loving kindness and mercy. And we add to this, that by the time of King Jehoram, the Lord had been patient with his people of that northern kingdom for decades upon decades. The prophets had been sent, prophet after prophet, to warn them, to call them to repentance. Elijah himself sent to them with such mercy and works of supernatural power to show the kindness and the mercy of God to them. But the people of Israel despised the prophets and they would not listen to their words. And now finally the patience of God has run its course and he now sends the great judgment upon them. He was never rash or quick in doing so. He was never unfair or unrighteous. The people had nothing really to complain of. The blame was not with God or his prophet. The blame was with them and their love of sin. The Lord had warned them 700 years before and he had graciously pleaded with them through the prophets to turn, to turn back to him. 
Does God not have a right to require obedience from the creatures that he has made? Does he not have the right to hold men accountable for their rebellion against him? Sin is no light or trivial thing in his eyes. His holiness and justice demand that sin must be punished. Sin carries an awful punishment, and that's what we see in that famine in Samaria. As repulsive as it is for us to hear the things we read of in the city of Samaria, we can be sure that human sin is far more repulsive in the sight of the holy God. And we learn from what happened in Samaria that God's judgments, just like his promises, are fulfilled exactly according to his word. The same with his judgments. His judgments are fulfilled exactly as they said they would be. Even so many centuries before, down to the details, his word of judgment comes to pass. And the same thing is true for us today, that God has foretold us that there will be a day of judgment coming upon the entire earth. And it will be a day of judgment far greater than anything that took place in Samaria. And we read of it in the book of Acts, chapter 17. We'll turn there, the book of Acts, chapter 17. Paul is in the city of Athens speaking to the Athenians. And we read in verse 30 and 31. Paul says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Verse 30, God says that he is now overlooking the times of the ignorance of the Gentile nations. Before the coming of Christ, he is now introducing a new era in which he is extending to all the Gentile nations which were once in darkness And without any hope of God and his salvation, he is now extending to all the nations of the earth the offer of salvation in the gospel. It must come by repentance. God calls now, he declares to all men everywhere that they should repent. It is a universal call. He is calling to all men everywhere that they should turn from their sins And repent. And the reason why, in verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which there will be a day of judgment. And it is certain that that fixed day will come to pass. And each day that passes now in this world brings us closer to that day of judgment for ourselves 
and for all the world and every man and woman. On that day, God will judge the world in righteousness. And his judgment will come through a man whom he has appointed, who is Jesus Christ. And he has given proof of it by raising him from the dead. So just as with the Jews so long ago, when he told them centuries before of his judgment that would come to pass, so it now is with all men that he is declaring to all men everywhere that he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. And just as it happened according to his word in Samaria, so it will happen according to his word that is written on that day as well. Many things have been written about that day in the New Testament and in the Scripture. The Lord Jesus himself shall descend out of heaven with a shout of the archangel, trumpet of God. He will appear in glory with his angels present with him. He will sit on a glorious throne Every man and woman will be raised from the dead and stand before him. And John tells us in the book of Revelation that the books will be opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire a judgment of God far worse than anything that happened in Samaria. And many will cry out and say, Lord, Lord, did we not know you? And Did we not do all of these things in your name? And did we not sit with you in the streets? And did we not eat with you? And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So what God is doing today is just as he did with Samaria so long ago. He has forewarned that the day is coming and he is calling all men to return to him because all who repent and all who come in faith to his beloved son, what will they find? Not judgment, but they will find mercy and forgiveness and grace from our Lord Jesus Christ. We turn back to 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings and the next verse we read in chapter 7 and verse 1, Elijah made a promise here in verse 1. Then Elijah said, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The whole city was in the midst of a great famine. Elijah, the prophet, speaks the word of the Lord here and makes this most astonishing promise that within 24 hours, the entire judgment will be removed the siege will be lifted, the Syrian army will be gone, the gates of the city will be opened, and there will be a most abundance of a great abundance of food, a measure of flying flour, two measures of barley will be sold for only 
a single shekel of silver. The whole thing seems so impossible. The city is suffering under the most extreme horrors of the famine. There is not a speck of flour. There is no barley anywhere to be found in the city. But nothing is impossible with God. And his promise here came to pass. And as the story goes on, everything that Elijah said was true. And there was this amazing deliverance. And this great abundance was given to the people. The same thing is true for us as sinners in our need of salvation. How can, how can guilty sinners be delivered from the judgment of a holy and righteous God? It seems so impossible. Our sins are so many. And every one of our sins demands God's almighty curse. And there is nothing that we can do to deliver ourselves. There are no good works that we can do to take away our sins. No works of the law will ever save us. We are like those starving people in Samaria. We are dying We are perishing in our sins. How can guilty sinners be saved from the wrath of God to come? The answer is found in the gospel, in our Lord Jesus Christ, for all who believe. God has made the most amazing, the most abundant provision for us. In his beloved son, things that are impossible for us, he has accomplished in him a righteousness of God, the forgiveness of all of our sins, and peace with God, and an inheritance which is to come, a new heavens and a new earth, an eternal life that is given to us. And just as God made that most abundant provision For that city of Samaria, so he has made the most abundant provision, far exceeding abundantly given to us in our Lord Jesus Christ and everything that he has accomplished for our salvation. For all who will turn away from sin, for all who will come to him and be saved Jesus invites us. Everyone who is hungry may come and eat. Everyone who is thirsty may come. And he will never be hungry again. And we will never be thirsty again for all who come to our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone comes, Jesus says, I will in no way cast him out. God help us to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, to be saved.
Let's pray together. Father, gracious God in heaven, thank you for the great mercy that you have shown to us. Thank you, you have accomplished everything that we need as guilty and lost sinners in such a glorious abundance in your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, open our eyes, all of us tonight, that we might see how needy we truly are and how all abundance is found in the Lord Jesus, the Savior. And may we all rest on him, trusting him, loving him, obeying him, and rejoicing in everything that he has done. We pray that you would hear us now and bless your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.